Welcome back to Around the Room. I'm Daniel Ennis. This is another episode of Ask an Expert, where Janet Pope takes your questions and talks us through some of the common and not so common issues we face in practice. Janet, welcome back. Great. Glad to be here. And I hear our podcast was somewhat of a success. Oh, totally. Yes. So thanks for coming back. And I want to set the table a little bit. On an average clinic day, I see maybe a a tenth of the number of patients that you see. But of that tenth, a number of them are people who have joint pain without visible synovitis. And I think that that's probably pretty common across the, the country that rheumatologists will see some cases like that. Or even if you're seeing someone who has, let's say, like lupus, but they're describing joint pain. I want to talk to you today about arthritis versus arthralgias and try and bridge the gap between those two things. So Janet, let's start off with a question from one of our listeners. Hi, Dr. Pope. This is Andrea Johnson, rheumatology resident from the University of Alberta in Edmonton. My question for you is... What do you use in practice to decide that you're going to write in your note that a patient has inflammatory joint pain? What is your definition of that? Thanks so much. So that's great. And I don't think there's a standardized one. So operationally, when we talk about arthritis, we're usually in our clinics, of course, talking about inflammatory arthritis, or we might say degenerative arthritis or soft tissue rheumatism, widespread pain, et cetera, myalgias or widespread pain fibromyalgia. When we're talking about arthralgia, my definition, I think, is that I really can't on regular clinical exam, I don't mean right now fancy imaging that we might get into, but on regular clinical exam, that when I palpate joints, there is no heat, there's no synovial thickening, no effusion, I don't see anything wrong with them. But yet they might or might not be tender, but by history, they're tender in, in an area that sounds inflammatory. It might be a distribution that could be compatible with one of our inflammatory arthritides, but it's also the prolonged stiffness, the gelling, um, things like that. So um, I find it really tough when someone has arthralgias to know what to do. So, so you use kind of a, a combination of like those historical and physical features to decide um, ultimately to establish a bit of a gestalt for whether you're going to say this is inflammatory or not. It's not a checkbox. And it's not a you have to have three out of five. You kind of contextualize it based on history and exams. Is that is that so? That's that's true. And there might be somebody's text, uh, you know, checklist uh, definition, and there's nothing wrong if they have one. But you get a sense right away that this is not erosive osteoarthritis that you've ruled out. So say if someone has wrist and bilateral second and third MCP stiffness, it lasts an hour and a half. It's better with heat and range of motion. But if they do too much activity, it's worse again. They don't witness swelling, although sometimes the patients witness swelling because when something really hurts, and honesty, it's hard to know if it's swollen or not. But yeah. no obvious witness swelling, particularly by the examiner. Um, and I would say that sounds to me like arthralgia in an inflammatory context. So I think of it joint pain, that sounds like it could be inflammatory arthritis, but it's not inflammatory arthritis, but it could maybe go there. Right. So so you kind of stratify it. Something can be arthralgias, something can be inflammatory arthralgias. And, and beyond that, you move into inflammatory arthritis when you, Dr. Pope, have confirmed that there is swelling or heat or, or something else on physical exam 
that is a convincing definitive uh you, you check that box ultimately Yes, that's right. Or and it could be somebody else. Like now in this day and age, there's a lot of pictures that get sent before the page comes or COVID and they send in pictures. Sometimes I don't even know what we're looking at. Is it a limb or what is it? Is it an elbow or a wrist? Sometimes it's hard to know and it's usually blurry. And sometimes when a patient says, Look how obviously swollen it is, don't be fooled. Sometimes it's not, and they're not trying to fake you out. It's just when something really hurts and you look at it a lot, you can kind of convince yourself it's swollen. And, you know, people say the rings don't fit. And that's obviously like fluid retention or just regular cyclical variation. If it's a woman who menstruates, things like that. So I don't, you know, I think it does have to be witnessed by a pretty reliable source. Okay. So uh, I'm wondering if you've uh, come across, there was a ULAR paper that came up with a a definition of clinically suspicious or clinically suspect arthralgias. Is that ringing any bells at all? It is ringing some bells. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I might have actually been a reviewer for that paper, but it got out. So that'd be good. (laughs) Okay, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna list some of like the characteristics that describe arthralgias. So these are people people who do not have swelling or clinical synovitis. So by history, these were kind of the things that were risks for the progression to RA or for the diagnosis of RA ultimately. So joint symptoms of recent onset, so less than a year. Symptoms located in MCP joints. Duration of morning stiffness over an hour. Most severe symptoms in the morning. And presence of a first degree relative with rheumatoid arthritis. And on physical exam, difficulty making a fist and positive squeeze tests of the MCP joints. So while, you know, I, I think that that's, that's an interesting grouping of symptoms, I'm curious what you think if those, if, you know, that grouping of symptoms defines for you a group that is like, huh, if you have a couple of these, that really is starting to put me into the camp of worrying that you have underlying subclinical synovitis. Does that, does that list kind of work for you? Right. So it works for me, but you'll be interested that if you compare what I just earlier said, I did say more than an hour of stiffness in the morning and then gelling and stuff like that. I did say wrist and second and third MCP. So fairly close to what they said. Absolutely. But, uh, But there are people with inflammatory arthralgia that had mono last week, they've got joint pain this week, and it's probably not going to be prolonged or less so when we see someone with say no in parvo, they could Mm -hmm. have inflammatory arthritis, but they could have inflammatory arthralgias. And I don't, I don't rule in or rule out with the first degree relative having RA because there's a couple reasons. Obviously, there's lots of people with RA who don't have a first degree relative with it. But Mm -hmm. also by self report or family history, they've done studies that twice as many people have RA than really have RA. So (laughs) because they know it's A, like it could be erosive OA or they just had joint pain. They could have had CPPD. So the family history isn't always accurate. But with that paper, what you would say is somebody at high risk to go into a chronic inflammatory arthritis that isn't crystal, that is more likely to be RA or, you know, checking more and more of those boxes. And Mm -hmm. I think when you have stress pain and tenderness, because they had did an MCP squeeze and they also did a fist. Um, I think that would make me think more if I was, and this is heresy now, but if I was at a point of care ultrasound believer, that's the kind of area where I'd like to put that Doppler on and see, you know, is there actually high Doppler flow that we're not expecting grayscale and that won't rule in or rule out anything. 
but I don't really believe that much in ultrasound to help me in this case. I think I'm still going to watch and wait irrespective of what's going on today on that patient, but following them for sure. And can you, let's dig into that a little bit. So can you kind of describe what you mean by uh, ultrasound believer, non-believer? Right. Well, um, we, we have lots of people, um, cruise group as a, for instance, who are highly regarded and, and have pushed ultrasound forward in a positive way to help our patients. So I'm not trying to deny that there's not a role for it, mm-hmm. but I, I realize that there can be false positives and say if somebody um, is building a home, they're a carpenter or something, they can have changes on uh, ultrasound that are nothing to do with inflammatory. They have more blood flow. They probably have early osteoarthritis happening. Maybe they have hydroxyapatite crystals in there. I don't know. So I I think we just have to be aware that the pre-test likelihood and the post-test likelihood don't go from 50 to 100. Maybe it goes from 30 to 60, and that means I'm still in uncertainty. That's my take on it. But again, I I could be uh, converted if I did more of it, and I don't do any of it. But right. we have uh, Tom Appleton in our group does it. So when I'm a non-believer, that doesn't belittle that you should be a non-believer. I'm just saying that I haven't used it in this way, so I don't know if it would help me or not. I, I have heard the argument from some also um, pointing to some literature that said, well, you know, the use of ultrasound didn't really ultimately change outcomes or didn't change treatment outcomes. I think that there is evidence on the other side of that 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 says that the use of ultrasound can change treatment trajectory. So stepping up treatment, stepping down treatment in patients who have kind of more the damage phase of the disease as opposed to active inflammatory arthritis. So it, it's kind of your a pattern of practice not to consistently be using ultrasound to define who does and does not have inflammatory arthritis. That's right. But that doesn't mean it's wrong or right. It's just what mm-hmm. I do. And, and I would say not only not consistently using it, like zero. Right. <laughs> and so, I think so, there's other people in my genre, they, it's an age thing. We kind yeah. of got by, you don't, you want, you, I think the bottom line is irrespective of what other tests is, we'll probably get into CCP and RF and inflammatory mm-hmm. markers, but irrespective, if you think this person is high risk for inflammatory, I think the bottom line is you want to follow them. And you want to also say, you don't want them on like um, speed dial on their phone to call you, but you really want to say that if you're worsening and or you see swelling in these sorts of areas, you prime them, call and say, I said, I get you in right away, doctor. That's the cue in our clinic. Dr. Pope Mm -hmm. said you get me in right away. And that means then the front desk or my secretary let them in. And it, it, I, I want to kind of address the idea that once there is already clinical synovitis, you, you've already kind of missed the earliest phase of the disease when maybe it starts on ultrasound or MRI, you might see that tenosynovitis before it evolves into true inflammatory arthritis. Um, but then other literature that suggests that like the treatment of early uh, arthritis or early inflammatory arthritis with like rituximab or more potent therapies may not really change the outcomes. Is that so? Is that your impression right. of that literature as well? Right. So there's a, a nice uh, meta-analysis where um, it was out of uh, the group in Texas. So there's a nice systematic review that looks at pre-RA, and we'll talk about that in a sec too, and giving a whole series of drugs, because these were RCTs from Depomedrol once to methotrexate for a year, uh, rituximab, abatacept, and fleximab. And I think there's a few other drugs, maybe hydroxychloroquine. But 
But the bottom line is in some circumstances, while you're on the therapy, you decrease the chance of meeting usually classification criteria for RA or decrease the chance of more swollen joints or current swollen joints. But when you stop therapy within a year, they go back to the same trajectory as everyone else in all those. And in fact, some of them don't even work. They're as good as placebo, unfortunately. So yeah, you were not going to treat someone long-term with inflammatory arthralgia RA suspect with treatment if they don't, uh, if we could be doing more harm than good, or if we do treat them, we eventually will stop. And then they seem to go back to the usual risk of the other people that weren't treated. Hmm. So it sounds like with that literature in the background, you feel that waiting for clinical synovitis, so your ability to detect swelling on examination, does not really impair your ability to treat them. It doesn't really ultimately seem to change major outcomes. And so you can comfortably say in clinic, if you don't detect clinical synovitis, there's no swelling on exam, that you are unlikely to be missing patients with true active arthritis, and or, or that you don't need to guide their treatment based on their arthralgias. Is that fair? Um, it's only partially fair. So I get that, I guess it depends on a lot of other factors. And if we just look at patient factors, if somebody was the carpenter and they need their hands to work, obviously, and a few NSAIDs haven't helped and maybe one depot medrol because that seems to treat everything transiently. <laughs> and sometimes right. it's sort of like, okay, if you got no response to that, maybe I really don't think you're inflammatory. Mm -hmm. So maybe 40 or 80 milligrams IM depot medrol once. All that stuff aside, I might use a hydroxychloroquine because I think it's relatively benign, despite some of the negative data I just talked about, because if that reduces your symptomatology by 30 to 70%, maybe we're a win for a while. So, uh, but you have to realize it's a slippery slope. If you start then, um, you know, add sulfasalazine, switch over to methotrexate, then they're on lofunamide and then bingo, they're on an advanced therapy. And <laughs> wonder, what am I treating again? I forget. Right. So, I, I think I, I worry about that too clinically is um, if I am an overdiagnoser and I say, okay, this person has no clinical synovitis, but they do have arthralgias. And if I go through my checkbox of the things that sound inflammatory about the arthralgias, okay, they do have a couple. Um, if I start that person on therapy, and let's say a Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine does not work, have I kind of committed myself? Am I doomed to continuing to step up therapy before I've even proved that they have true rheumatoid arthritis? Because even in the uh, clinically suspect arthralgia studies from the ULAR group, not all of those people go on to develop rheumatoid arthritis. So if you use that as your criteria for treatment, you are probably over-treating. And so I find, it, I find it difficult in that gray area before there's clinical synovitis to decide exactly what to do. And so maybe you can elaborate a bit on how you would use serology if that changes your decisions on treatment at that point. Right. So it, first of all, it does help. And I don't think we're always committed, but I try to have the conversation up front to do no harm. Um, there is some patient literature, by the way, that they say, we don't care so much about the label, please help us. Right. So of that's course. not a bad idea, right? Yeah, they came absolutely. to you, they got to a subspecialist because they're, they're achy and, um, and, and we've ruled out by history and physical, you know, non-inflammatory chronic or regional widespread pain and things like that. So with that in mind, um, the ULAR literature, they looked at um, 
at least two clinics. So, and they looked over three to five years of CCP positive or not. And I think it was Leiden and the French group, but SWAR. But anyway, they were two large groups of ERA, uh, well documented uh, patients, but these were the pre RA. So they were arthralgias. Um, they might or might not have had ultrasound and they were aqua positive or not. And the bottom line was, is if you were ACPA negative, you did had you had a very low chance and like a handful percent in one year and 10 or 15 percent in three to five years, depending on which study, because there's two sub studies in a recent publication of having rheumatoid arthritis. If you're ACPA positive, you're something like at most one in four or one in five in the first year of actually becoming what we would call rheumatoid arthritis meeting classification criteria. But three to five years hence, because one study followed for three and the other cohort for five, you're still only at at most um, one in three, maybe 40%, which means I could like cure 60% of people by putting them on methotrexate and they'd love me and you get the best <laughs> rate your doctor ever because you don't have it. So it's like I cured what you didn't have, right? Right. So I, so there is an issue with over-treatment. But on the other hand, if someone has a family history, like I say, treat their sibling or their mom or something, and they come in and they have arthralgia and their CCP will say is moderately positive positive, inflammatory markers, normal, RF will just say for all intents and purposes, negative. I'd be more apt to write a prescription of hydroxychloroquine on that patient. It would be, you would have to probably have that they're even feeling worse, maybe going to, you know, lose time from leisure or work time before you would really push me into writing a methotrexate prescription. And um, I do have patients like that. I have a few where um, I've known their family members, one or two first degree relatives and the patients, I'm, I'm a hero. And they're on Plaquenil and I'm a hero because it probably just attenuated over time. But I was a hero on one who then got retinal toxicity. So I was no longer a hero. And we stopped it and they still didn't get um, inflammatory arthritis. But in fairness, the guy did have what sounded like, but never witnessed, a few palindromic flares in there as well. And you know, palindromic rheumatism can become RA. But so again, just even what we think is pretty easy and well tolerated, you could do harm. So your your treatment threshold does not necessarily match your diagnostic threshold. So even if you say like, no, this person does not meet my diagnostic criteria um, for rheumatoid arthritis, they may still, if they have convincing enough a story, even in the absence of synovitis, there are a couple of people who you still would treat. Yes, but with a dialogue saying, you know, mm -hmm. we can try this for X months, like say... Um, 12 weeks, so three months, you come back. And if you are not moderately better, if that's a benchmark we agreed on, then let's call it quits on this. And patients are very reasonable to say, okay, I feel desperate, do something, please. Because mm -hmm. if we don't try, and I'm not just saying that we should try because we're going to make them feel better. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. But you have to also look at the alternative are two scenarios. They go to emerge and they get a bunch of depomedrol and then they get oral prednisone. And then all of a on their back, Cushingoid, and still have pain, right. or they get even worse, a fentanyl patch, and now they're on a chronic narcotic. So because 
you know, joint pain is, um, especially polyarticular inflammatory sounding joint pain is um, patients are distressed over it. And mm -hmm. sometimes their hack is high because it's difficult to do things. So we have to be realistic that you want to do no harm. But then if you're going to pick something, the, the least of the various choices, the least evil of them, so to speak. Okay. We'll be right back to Around the Room after this brief message from the CRA. Did you know that membership with the Canadian Rheumatology Association offers outstanding value through knowledge sharing, accredited educational offerings, advocacy, and research support? Members receive access to free webinars, programs, and discounts to events such as the CRA Review Course and Annual Scientific Meeting. Members also receive complimentary subscriptions to the Journal of Rheumatology and the Journal of the Canadian Rheumatology Association. Trainees can join for free and are eligible for educational and training opportunities, travel bursaries, and much more. These are just some of the many benefits of joining the Canadian Rheumatology Association. And if you're an existing member, spread the word to rheumatology colleagues who haven't joined yet. They'll thank you for it. For more information, please visit our website at www.room.ca. And now, back to Around the Room. Okay, Janet, this is a great time to take another question from one of our listeners. Hi, Dr. Pope. This is Andrea Johnson, rheumatology resident at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. In situations where you have tried Plaquenil on a let's-see-if-it-works basis and it doesn't work and the symptoms have remained the same, is that a time when you would ask for an ultrasound or even an MRI to see if there is any low-grade synovitis? Thanks so much. Well, I think that a lot of these technologies make sense, whether, you know, the usual rheumatologist can get an MRI in about, what, two years for hand and wrist, because it's a low priority, right? Um, yeah. Unless if they're in maybe a specialty center or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, ultrasound, uh, you probably want a fellow rheumatologist if you don't do it yourself, because the ultrasonographers are really good at looking at certain things, but um, they might over or under call for joint synovitis if they're not used to it. I'm talking really the ultrasonographers that work with radiologists to look for, you know, tears in your wrists and things like that. They might they might not even report things. And if there is tenus synovitis, I mean, we do have hints sometimes at the ulnar styloid, the, um, that's a common place for a bit of tenus synovitis. Or if they really can't do a full tuck sign, they can't really get that hand way down. If you have tenus synovitis, you could really have early RA and you should be treated because that's very problematic on function. Uh, you mentioned something just a, a few questions ago about uh, palindromic rheumatism. I'm wondering if you can remind me what that is exactly and how you diagnose it, differentiate it from right. evolving so, rheumatoid. So it's interesting. Palindromic rheumatism seems to almost be a concept of North America and UK and maybe not even all of Europe. And I know that because um, one of the uh, trainees did an, um, a palindromic rheumatism article from our catch cohort. And what all define, this doesn't mean it's a hard and fast definition, but basically 
sudden significant inflammatory arthritis of one or two joints or of a joint and periarticular around it. So not many, uh, and it can be joint as well as periarticular or sometimes weirdly just periarticular, that peaks in swelling and in pain by one day, by 24 hours, to be fully resolved by 24 to 72 hours. And then it wants to bounce back, migrating around, and the frequency can be quite frequent, not so frequent, but it should be coming and going. So the palindrome, right, is coming and going, coming and going. So one to three days. So as soon as someone has two weeks of this, they're an RA suspect in my mind or crystal or seronegative, depending on the other features. But the one to three day group um, we found in the early arthritis, the catch cohort, that it was about one in four people, which I thought was higher than might be reality. But we, in honesty, we didn't ask them the question, do you have palindromic rheumatism? And we actually didn't also ask the investigators that. We asked the patient, do you have swelling in joints that will come and go? And how long has that gone on before it came and stayed? So it was kind of a couple questions that might be, but you know, that might be what people again think their back swells. And I don't see too many swollen backs. The muscle spasm, yes. <laughs> right. So so we probably misclassified many and, and we agreed that we probably did. But weirdly, it was about one in four. Weirdly, that was also what they found in the UK in a study. And uh, Paul Emery's group has done a systematic review on palindromic rheumatism. And uh, this systematic review was interesting how many of them go on to get fixed arthritis, probably one in three, one in three fade away, and one in three still kind of chug along. And it's not quite as clean stats as that, but something like that. And of course, if they're seropositive, they're more apt to become RA. And they're also delayed in RA diagnosis and more apt to be seropositive of rheumatoid factor in the catch cohort. So kind of makes them make sense that it fits. But but if you had a better definition, I would buy it. <laughs> well, I definitely don't. That that actually sounds great. That's an interesting concept. And in that I, I've definitely seen some of those cases that I've labeled as palindromic and then came back and they just appeared to have just full RA. And I go, oh, did I just was I just not listening when they showed up the first time? Or was it really palindromic and this is just the natural evolution for this, you know, one third of uh, patients, perhaps. Um, do you? Uh, is there a difference in how you would approach treatment for those patients? Well, first of all, there are no fairly accepted standardized uh, treatment algorithms. So mm-hmm. first of all, you can make it up. So I'll tell you how I make <laughs> it up because you know Perfect. you know I like to make things up and at least I'm always honest that I, <laughs> it's the world according to my guess and nothing more. So I usually would try hydroxychloroquine if it's frequent enough and or severe enough that it's interfering. If someone only has one a month, it is very, and I've seen it, I've witnessed it, but they I get them to chart it out or they often come in with their color coding on their calendar, which is great. It's helpful. So if I'm convinced and it's not very frequent, I say, do you want an NSAID when it happens or do you want prevention? And they go, well, how will I know prevention's working if it decreases my stuff by a third and I don't have it that much? Because one third to me is at least the beginning of treatment success. So some people, they just take NSAIDs and they have a prescription or over the counter ready to go when it happens and try to keep them out of the emergency room as well. We don't want them on a fentanyl patch either. So with that said and done, uh, I'll usually use, if it's frequent enough, and or bothersome enough. It could only be once every week, but if it takes out three days a week and you're a hairdresser and it's in a wrist and then an MCP and then your other wrist and then a tinnitus and a vitus, 
and then your shoulder, you might really want something done. So then it would be hydroxychloroquine first. So NSAIDs, hydroxychloroquine. There's no point probably in injecting a joint because again, it looks great because it'll be gone in one to three days, whether I inject it or not, if it's found on <laughs> the rheumatism. So there's no point. And then after hydroxychloroquine, have I gone with palindromic rheumatism on to sulfasalazine, even methotrexate, rarely beyond methotrexate to leflunamide? Yes, but it's because these people are strongly ACPA positive and they're having like two or three episodes every week or two. And that's very problematic, but I still call them CCV positive, RA suspect, palindromic rheumatism. I try to say all the words because you can get this sort of... um diagnostic or labeling bias and then you forget to think and has mm -hmm. the odd one become gout over time yeah but that always is really disconcerting when it's never been in their great toe their midfoot or their ankle it's like what are you doing with gout but <laughs> maybe they have two things so just be be cognizant pseudo gout rarely other crystal arthritis could really mimic palindromic and some of them become psoriatic they finally get a dactylitis and get pits in their nail and i say like you say did i miss that last time no it's new there so and then even if their CCP is positive, we just decide to relabel them and get on a treatment algorithm of a fixed inflammatory arthritis. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So as my final question, I'm curious uh, in this area of pre-arthritis, early arthritis, inflammatory arthralgias, what do you think that trainees and young rheumatologists kind of, what do we do wrong? Or do you have any pearls for us that we could kind of take away? First of all, you're not doing things wrong. Uh, patients are patient, and we are we, we're learning all the time. So don't worry. You we we are often trying to get the best data we can to help each patient one at a time, and reading where we can to get the best answers. So don't worry that way. So a couple clinical pearls: um, don't overtreat. Uh, is one for pre-RA to RA suspect uh, because you'll end up on several biologics that don't work or advanced therapies that don't work and they don't work because the patient doesn't have the problem. Or mm -hmm. you'll be curing everyone because they had Ross River fever because they went to Australia when they could travel or something, right? They'll have right. something else that might be self-limited. Okay, clinical pearl number two is um, there is not a standardized agreed upon definition of pre-RA. And in the randomized controlled trials where they are using uh, drugs that might be effective until you stop the drugs, they are usually RA, in my opinion, patients that don't meet criteria for RA. So the 2010 uh, ACR ULAR criteria, they're often ACPA positive. They often even have a couple joints in the methotrexate trial. They almost met RA criteria. And the outcome was, do you meet classification criteria by the end of a year? or not, or time to uh, getting there? And is there a decrease in uh, patients getting there? And methotrexate did work. And we use methotrexate in these people that we call UPAR, whatever, un, um, undifferentiated inflammatory polyarthritis. That's probably just mild RA or mild PSA or something. Right. So we, you can use methotrexate in people that you think are almost RA or almost PSA or something. And I think you can even go down an RA treatment algorithm. But the clinical pearl is don't put your blinders on. Say in the note what you thought, because whether you have an EMR or trainees dictating, trainees always just re-say what the last person said. So if you have trainees in your clinic, just 
tell them to say, we always say uh, as a, for instance, lupus suspect, and we go with um, arthralgia, uh, positive rho, moderate positive ANA, and whatever pattern, um, and serositis with proven pericarditis with 20 years ago. And you go, well, why aren't you calling lupus? And I go, well, you can call them lupus, but I'm calling them what I think they have. And yeah, maybe it's lupus, maybe it's not, but obviously they're lupats or pre-lupus and we're treating them like lupus. But it reminds me to put the brakes on when I should because do no harm is really important. And then I think really the last pearl is don't be afraid to ask someone with gray hair or no hair or they dye their hair. Don't be afraid to ask somebody else because we all have um, we all have opinions, but there are people that have been through it. And I used to let trainees when I first started practice do things like give prednisone when I wasn't sure it was PMR. And now it's like, you know, we can have people um, where we're, we have people where we can't get them off prednisone and the index of suspicion was only mild at best. So what were we thinking? Give it time. It's not GCA. So don't, don't jump Jump the gun, but also even if you've jumped the gun or not and you're not sure, ask those around you that have had a bit more experience or a lot more experience because there is no right answer, but they can at least tell you that um, the pros and cons and where they were really on, and I've been on, where we've been on thin ice. So patience, humility, and careful observation will kind of keep us from overdiagnosing. That's exactly it. Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, Janet, again, thank you so much for doing this. It was so nice to to chat with you. Nice to see you as always. Uh, and we hope to have you back soon for another episode. Thank you so much, Daniel, and enjoy your weekend. You too. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. To ask questions for our upcoming Ask the Expert segment on lupus pearls or scleroderma pearls, or to suggest future topics, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R Room. And before I say goodbye, I want to introduce our next episode, which will be our first in French. Vous écoutez le balado autour de la rhumato. My colleague, Dr. Hugues Alar Shamar from the University of Sherbrooke, is the host of what we hope will become a regular feature in this podcast feed. Next month, he hosts Quebec City rheumatologist Dr. Louis Besset. We hope you enjoy it. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Kevin Bagenoth. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. And of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.